This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that you can join us. If you are a first-time listener, what we do for the next hour or so is take people's questions as they've been studying Scripture. Maybe there's a personal uh, issue that you're facing in your life and you want biblical counsel on or a challenge in your ministry at your church or a passage you're just trying to better understand. If we can be of help, we will do our very best to respond to your questions. There are several ways, as mentioned in the preview, that you can contact us. Again, locally, it's the 843 South Carolina Exchange, and that's 525-1859. Uh, the toll-free number is 877. The call letter is WAGP980. Or if you prefer, you can simply contact us here directly at TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. All right. We're glad to be here, Rick, as always. And so let's go ahead and get started. I think we have some email questions that have come in, and let's maybe begin there until we get a live caller. All right. Sounds good. Lester from Anderson, South Carolina, writes, During the last Easter Sunday message by our church pastor, he used the phrase body bag several times and even said that Mary went to the grave site to unzip the bag. Uh, my wife and I were and are still absolutely shocked by his use of this terminology when Scripture in the four Gospels is completely void of any such description describing the material in which Christ's body was wrapped. Would greatly appreciate your response to this. Also, who do you believe was the other person besides Cleopas on the walk to Emmaus, male or female? Um, Another male, or was it Cleopas's wife, Mary? I've examined scripture and researched what others have concluded, but have not reached a definitive conclusion myself. Well, I certainly uh, did not hear the sermon, so I don't want to be unfair to this pastor, maybe who's trying to create some kind of uh, picture in people's minds of a modern comparison. I certainly would not have used a body bag, much less zipping, because there were no such things as zippers in the first century. But I think really um, it would have been wiser to have given a little more focus on precisely how Christ was buried because it speaks volume about prophecy and other things. Um, I've turned here to John chapter 19, and we're told after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, remember that, John 3, you must be born again, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as the burial custom of the Jews. And now in that place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. 
Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So there's a very clear picture of what happened. Um, the scripture tells us that the gospel, as it's presented in 1 Corinthians 15 and throughout the Bible, is that Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. And so Christ died is part of the gospel, as is the burial. The burial of Christ is part of the plan of salvation, along with the resurrection. And the burial is important because it's proof that Jesus was dead and that he was resurrected. And then how he was buried was very, very important. And number one, they would take these wrappings and they would wrap the body and then put spices and wrap it some more and more spice and wrap it some more. And the fact that these two men did this uh, in a public way, they came to the Pharisees indicates, I mean, to the Roman leaders indicates that they were willing to publicly identify with Christ. So it gave them a chance, these secret disciples, so to speak, one who came by night, the other who is described during his uh, Christ's reign as a secret disciple. Now they've gone public. So they're kind of making a confession of faith here. They're identifying with the Lord Jesus fully. And uh, in addition, the fact that they wrapped him as such is, has great implications in the next chapter, in John chapter 20. If you remember, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, being John, of course, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple, John, ran ahead uh, faster than Peter. He was younger, of course, and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there in the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but load up, rolled up in a place by itself. So when Mary arrives, she just sees the stone rolled away. She assumes that someone had stolen the body. Peter and John run to the tomb. Peter looks in. John looks in. And so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. He goes in for a second look. He looks, and he saw. It's a, it's a um, Greek word that means to perceive, to understand, and he believed. He believed on the basis of the linen wrappings because, again, when— Jesus came out of the grave. Uh, his body passed through those wrappings. And what he did is he took the headpiece and he laid it separately apart from the rest of the wrappings that would have shown that the cocoon, so to speak, was empty. It might have had a little flatness to it, but when you wrap all those spices and all those linen cloths together, you create almost like a mummy. And the fact that the headpiece was separate and orderly, you know, these pictures sometimes of these resurrection scenes where the, the grave clothes are just thrown all over the interior of the tomb are so inaccurate. And they do a disservice because the grave clothes themselves were a testimony that Jesus had passed through those wrappings just like Later that day, he passed through locked doors where the disciples were in fear. 
of those who might come after them. So uh, I, I think it's rather trite and really does a disservice to God's people to actually help them to see the magnificence of these grave wrappings, not to mention, you know, in the Psalm, one of the great Messianic Psalms in Psalm 16, it says, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. And so when you wrap a body this way and in this fashion, remember he came out of the grave on the third day, which is interesting in and of itself. And I will address this in some, a future sermon I have coming down the road. Um, But this whole idea that he came out without decay, part of that was the timing of it, because decay really sets in late in the third day and into the fourth day. But it's um, retarded even further by the fact that the ways the Jews wrap the body tightly with all these clothes, uh, with all these linen wrappings and all these spicings. And so, again, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. And then the fact that um, Nicodemus takes a hundred pounds of spices. I mean, that's a, that's a king's ransom. And again, the prophet had foretold that there would be a rich man in his death. And Joseph of Arimathea being that man owned a tomb nearby and they placed him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, which was right next to Golgotha. If you go with me to Israel, we'll go to this very spot. I think this is a class A spot. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is certainly not the place that Jesus was crucified. And I'll give 15 reasons why that is a total impossibility. Now, the Roman Catholics view it as the spot where Jesus died and was raised, but it's clearly not the spot. And if you come with me to Israel, we'll go to Golgotha, and not 40 yards away is a garden tomb that fits all the parameters of the description that's found in the New Testament. And again, it was described as being nearby. 40 yards might be a little far. I think maybe 25, 30 yards would be a more accurate description. I've not actually measured it, but it's just a stone's throw away. It's nearby where they laid the body of the Lord Jesus. And that tomb for centuries and centuries and centuries was covered over and silted in dust. And then in the late 1800s, they they found it and dug it out, and it was like preserved perfectly. So it's really pretty amazing place to go. And we're going, God willing, in September. Israel is fully open, right, Rick? You sent me an email on that. Mm -hmm. So, Yep, tourism is on. So that's good, and we're planning to go in September. If you have interest in that, go to searchthescriptures.org, and uh, the dates and opportunities are all posted there. Let's go to the next question. Well, he did also have a question regarding Cleopas' wife. Oh, okay, yeah. Or the other, who was the other person besides Cleopas on the walk to Emmaus? Well, um, was it another male or was it Cleopas's wife, Mary? Well, we don't know. You know, here in Luke 24, where the Emmaus Road uh, encounter is described, and they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though they were going further, but they urged him, saying, stay with us. So this whole pericope starts with uh, these two people, one of them, Luke twenty four eighteen says, is named Cleopas. So we can be dogmatic on that. And while they're walking along, the scripture says that Jesus prevented uh, them from recognizing him. So they had been in Jerusalem. They were pious Jews. They were there for Passover. Now it's Sunday, the first day of the week. They need to get back to the, their home 
they need to go to work the next day, Cleopas anyway, and uh, it's just a stone's throw, not, not a stone's throw, but it's seven miles. It's very close. Bethlehem is about six miles. Um, the village of Emmaus is seven miles away. So they're both very, very close. And so we know for sure one is named Cleopas, and they ask him to stay. So he went in to stay with them. Now, if Cleopas was a great husband, you know, he didn't want to uh, maybe bring a guest in unannounced to his wife. It may very well have been Mary, which is his wife's name. It may very well have been Mary. But look, I can't be dogmatic where the scripture is not dogmatic. All we know is that there were two individuals, one of whom was named Cleopas. I think you can build a case that it was Mary, the wife of Cleopas, because in John's gospel, Mary, the wife of Clopas, which is just an alternate spelling of Cleopas, Pete, Peter, whatever, um, uh, was there at the foot of the cross watching the crucifixion. And then some build a case, too, that Cleopas or Clopas was actually Joseph's brother, um, which may have been great reason for her to have been there at the cross and to bring comfort to um, Mary's, you know, brother in brother in law, and so forth. So, um, there's there's a good reason maybe to build a case for, her, but we don't know. So it's just speculation. I don't certainly want to be guilty of eisegesis and to read into the text something that's not there. We'll have to wait to he- we get to heaven to find out. But there's all kinds of speculation and ink spilt as to who the other person is. The fact is, God never names the individual. All right, Lou from Beaufort wants to know, do you believe God's timeline for man is 7,000 years? If Jesus died in AD 28 or 30, isn't the 2,000 years up in 2028 or 2030? If you start with 1948 with the establishment of the state of Israel, where the generation who sees these things will not pass away before his return, adding 80 years, 80 if by strength, you get 2028. We should know the season, and we shouldn't be unaware, right? There seems to be no urgency in the church for the soon coming end. Most everyone uses no man knows the day or the hour, cop out, as a way of just basically throwing their hands up and saying it will all pan out. Doesn't God want us to know the season as in all the fall feasts? Jesus admonished Israel for not knowing the time of their visitation. That tells me we should also know the time of our visitation. Well, one, I wouldn't make a direct parallel between the spring and fall feasts and our being able to set a date. I take it that the fall feasts, the the, the spring feasts, uh, Pentecost, the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, I mean, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Weeks, uh, being uh, highlighted on the 50th day of weeks, namely Pentecost, were all fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. There's no question about that. I take it that the fall feast will be fulfilled during the time of the Great Tribulation leading up to uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is an Old Testament picture of the coming um, reign of the Messiah on the earth. Um, But the church won't be here for that. And when Jesus speaks, this generation will not pass away. What generation is he speaking of? He's speaking about the generation of people who are alive during the time of the birth pangs that are unfolding during the time when the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, will commit the abomination of desolation there in the temple. 
And so the people who are alive during that time frame will recognize when you see all these things, recognize he's right near at the door. So these are tribulation saints that he's describing. And if you've been with us in our study of the Revelation, then you know that the first section of Matthew 24, all the way down to verse 14, perfectly fits the seal and trumpet judgments. And then, of course, when the final trumpet is blown, there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes. And people are just awestruck because something is about to happen that they are able to see in the bold judgments that are going to take place. And that um, those bold judgments will be set off by an event known as the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist goes into the temple and makes himself out to be God, and there'll be an idolatrous act that is committed during this time that will open the eyes of the Jewish people to, to recognize he can't possibly be the Messiah because he is violating the clear injunction of Scripture, one of the Ten Commandments, concerning idolatry. And when that event happens, Jesus said, look out, Um, A time of unfolded tribulation is going to take place for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, for believers who come to faith during this seven year period, those days will be cut short. And so uh, the bold judgments are unprecedented. Uh, they make, in some respects, though they are horrible, the seal and trumpet judgments, but in some respects they make them look like a picnic because the intensity is wound up absolutely huge. Now, let me just pause to say that uh, we could be playing this same scenario that you are unfolding here in terms of uh, some years back, some people will say, well, generation was 40 years. So Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, which was a number one bestseller out of any book in America for 10 years in a row, according to Time Magazine. Um, it, it sold a phenomenal amount of books. And I think there was a real vacuum there in the body of Christ because so few people speak on prophecy. You ask uh, people, does your pastor ever speak on Bible prophecy? And sadly, the recurring answer tends to be no. And so there was a real void there, and he filled that void. He lost a lot of credibility. I think it was after his fourth or fifth marriage. But um, he lost so much credibility in the body of Christ, most people didn't pay him much attention. But he did make some dramatic kinds of predictions that if Israel became a nation in 1948, then a generation would be 40 years, and God was going to wrap it up by 1988. And then he created another book called Countdown to Armageddon, and same kind of scenario. There have been others who have done it. Uh, There was a radio set of stations across America called Family Radio, and its president was Harold Camping. And in the 90s, I think it was in 94, uh, he set a date for the return of Christ. And that time came and went. 
And then he, um, yeah, I think it was initially in September, he said, oh, I'm wrong. It's going to happen in October. It didn't happen in October. And then he kind of lost a lot of credibility. But enough time had transpired where he came back in 2011. And I, I just, it was really clear to me because we had a member of our church who came to me and his brother was following Harold camping and the guy had sold his home and all his stuff and was giving the money to family radio and uh, May of 2011 didn't come. And so then he changed the date to October of 2011. And after that, no one listened to him. He had a stroke and he died a year or two later. But this whole idea that, you know, Jesus is clear of that day and hour, no one knows. And of course, at this point, while he is in his human body, he knows now not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father alone. Um, In the same chapter here, he says, therefore, be in the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And so he said, for this reason, you be ready too, for the son of man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. And uh, even on the Mount of Olives, when Jesus ascends into heaven, uh, the disciples are asking him because he's speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And there's going to be a unique expression of the Holy Spirit during the time of the millennial reign of Messiah. And they think, well, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus didn't believe in replacement theology, which is now the popular view, supersessionism, as it's often referred to in theological circles, that the church has superseded Israel, that there's no future for Israel. It comes out of Roman Catholicism, was reaffirmed by Luther, by Calvin. Uh, They made some terribly horrible anti-Semitic statements about the Jewish people And now it's the popular view in America that the church is the new Israel, that we have superseded Israel. It's a false view. And this is part of the reason why I think the church is lukewarm. They're really not ready. They don't see what is actually happening and what is unfolding today in our day. But the disciples said, Lord, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus would have had a wonderful opportunity to say, well, there is no kingdom for Israel. You know, uh, the, the church is now the new Israel. And so... I'm not going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Look, there's so much prophecy in the Old Testament concerning the second coming. Out of all the prophecies that are written concerning the first and second coming of Messiah, only about a third of them have been fulfilled. So about two-thirds of the prophecies don't relate to the first coming. They relate to the second coming of Christ. There's just dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of texts all the way through the Old Testament that speak of this future time when Jesus will return. He's going to return to the Mount of Olives. He's going to stick his feet on that mountain. He's going to split it in two. There's going to be a water source that's going to flow from the Temple Mount all the way down to the Dead Sea. People are going to fish in the Dead Sea. You go there today, you can't catch anything. Nothing lives in it. It's totally dead. Absolutely nothing lives in the Dead Sea. Now, there have been some sinkholes because the Jordan River has been used so heavily in irrigation. There have been some sinkholes that have been created that have, that have filled up with fresh water, uh, but even there, um, fish don't live, just some microorganisms. But in the Dead Sea itself, absolutely nothing lives. And yet God says there's going to come a time when that is going to happen. Do you just write all that off and say, well, no, it's not going to happen? No, it's going to happen just as Jesus said. And so here's the sad thing. One of the reasons God has not 
told us the day or the hour when Jesus will come is because I think he wants us to live by faith. He wants us to live for his glory. And sadly, in the history of the church, there have been groups who have been convinced that Christ is coming and they've set dates. Um, Much more of this happened in the 19th century. There was a guy by the name of William Miller. They were known as the Millerites. And he said Jesus was coming in October of 1844 and people quit their jobs and everything else. And when it didn't happen, uh, that event became known as the Great Disappointment. But there was an individual, her name was Ellen G. White, who came out of that movement along with the Jehovah's Witness and um, Ellen G. White said, no, it did happen. Jesus spiritually uh, went into the heavenly temple, and she created this whole uh, doctrine on the heavenly anointing of the temple, and and Seventh-day Adventists still look back to 1844 as a critical date in their eschatology. Um, and more recently, some had said, well, you know, generation is 70 years. And so they took 1948, added 70 years, and now that didn't happen. So now they've added 80 years, which would bring us to, you know, 2028, where if you minus seven years, uh, the rapture has to happen this year. The tribulation has to start any minute, you know, and, uh, you know, it could happen. Jesus certainly could do it. He can come at any moment, but we don't know the dates. In the text, when when you see these things happen, he's talking about that generation that is alive during the time of the Great Tribulation. Those who see these things happen, the Antichrist walking into the temple, all these tribulation saints, because the church will have been removed, they know the time is right at any moment. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Bill from Stevens City, Virginia says, could you help point me to an existing message that explains the step-by-step process that the Bible lays out for the believer in Christ that dies and goes to be with the Lord? I've tried search the scriptures, but I'm not getting anywhere. I know the spirit leaves the body. Do they get an immediate glorified body? Is the Bama seat judgment next? Is the mansion apartment assigned are we waiting for the wedding feast? What about the metakoi and the assignment for the life of good faithfulness? So what I might suggest to you is we offer a course at Community Bible Church called the Discovery Class. And the actual audio messages have been taken down because I'm redoing them on Wednesday nights. But the handout is still available um, because we, we teach it uh, to new Christians. It takes 45 weeks long now. When COVID kicked in, we had nearly 100 people, almost all new Christians, in the discovery class, and we taught at both hours, and I thought, man, we need to help these new believers, so I started recording them on Wednesday nights, and so we have 18 of the 45 weeks that are up online right now. It's called Basic Discipleship, but the particular handout in view is not available in audio, but the schematic is. It's called God's prophetic schedule, and I walk through event by event by event. So the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And after the church is raptured, there is a period of time, it could be days, could be weeks, could be months, uh, where after the rapture of the church, the Antichrist will step on the scene, and he'll sign a covenant, 
And that's why we can't specifically say one knows the exact day or the hour because we might not know the day he signs it. Or two, there is some cleanup operation, as Daniel indicates in the 12th chapter, that will bring about the second coming. So no one can say the exact day or the hour, even of tribulation saints. They will definitively know the precise season. Though I often tell people, look, there are no signs that have ever needed to be fulfilled for the second coming of Christ. God could have raptured the church a month after Pentecost because the last days really started in that whole time frame. Some would put it the last days with the first coming of Messiah, that in these last days God has spoken not through the prophets or through visions or dreams, but through his Son. But Peter definitively puts it by the day of Pentecost. This is what God said would happen in the last days when they witnessed the miracle of Pentecost where people from 15 different nations or, uh, or geographical locations were, were speaking different languages and dialects within the language. It was something that was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So the scripture teaches the imminent return of Christ, that he could come at any moment. And with that said, uh, there are no signs for the rapture. Now, how God could have pulled some things off, you know, if he had done it in the third century, the fourth century, I don't know. Like there will be two witnesses that will uh, have a testimony during the first half of the great tribulation period. And when their bodies are dead, the whole world, the Bible says, will look at their bodies. Now, God could have put a visual in the sky if he wanted to, or he could have CNN and Fox News and all the TV cameras and satellites of the world filming it where the whole world can see it, just like the Scripture says. Uh, He certainly makes it clear that no one will be able to buy or sell anything unless they have the mark of the beast, 666. It could be a literal, actual tattoo, and maybe with the popularity of tattoos, the world is being acclimated to take a tattoo on either the hand or the forehead, or it could be some you know, marked like a a chip, though the word that's used for mark is of an etching, and that's how it's typically used in Koine Greek. So my point is, is God could pull it off at any moment, but when you see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, which is a prophetic event, then you know that the rapture that has to precede the second coming is that much closer. And so, Israel has to be back in the land. God could have raptured the church and then gathered the Jews from the four corners of the world. That, that's a prophecy that God gives that after the Jews are scattered, he will bring them back. And he's not just talking about the Babylonian captivity in Jeremiah 16. He's talking about gathering them, and he repeats it later in Jeremiah, and he repeats it again in Ezekiel, and in Deuteronomy mentions it, and how the Jews would be scattered across the planet. There's only one people in the history of the world that have been scattered across the planet and have now come back into the land as a nation, and that's the people of Israel. Um, But as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them, I will restore them to their own land and that I had given to their fathers. That's, That's a prophecy that is being fulfilled in our day. And so if you go to Israel today, there's a hundred nations that are represented there in the land of Israel. And the amazing thing too, is that the language that had been lost 
uh, for nearly 2,000 years has been rejuvenated. So there's no other people on the face of the earth that this could ever have been said of except the Jewish people. So the fact that we have gone from 20,000 Jews during the time of the Balfour Declaration in 1917 to 600,000 Jews on the day they became a nation, and the next day they were under attack by millions and millions of Arabs, and God supernaturally delivered them where they were victorious. And then in the 67 war and so forth, and these wars that followed, they are always victorious. They're not going to be removed from the land, and God keeps bringing the Jews and there's nearly 7 million Jewish people now in the land of Israel. There's only about 12, 12 and a half million, depending on how you label a Jew. A Jew is someone who is a literal descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A Gentile can't become a Jew. A Gentile could follow Judaism, but Donald Trump's daughter is not a Jew. She's following Judaism. She's a Gentile. She's married to a Jewish man, and her children are Jewish because Jewishness are established by the father. Ruth was a Gentile, and even after she converts to the God of Israel, she's called Ruth the Moabitess repeatedly through the book of Ruth. And so God in the New Testament makes distinctions between Jews and Gentile proselytes, Gentiles who are converted to Judaism. So Jewishness is determined by the father as seen with Moses and others who marry Gentiles. With that said, we have the Jews back in the land. Will 100% of them come? No, because the scripture teaches that the final group will be gathered during the time uh, of Christ's physical return to the earth, and he'll bring them back into the land. So we're seeing not only the super sign, as we might refer to it, of Israel being back in the land, we're also seeing other signs, the moral climate of the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And let me just say parenthetically here, there's a bill right now in the South Carolina um, legislature that has passed in the House and the Senate is going to review it this week. So it's in committee this week. Go to palmettafamily.org. You can get all the details. You can get the names of the people and their phone numbers. If you're a member of Community Bible Church, we're sending you out an email. They need to hear like today, tomorrow before noon at the latest. They need to hear that you're not pleased with the bill because the way it is worded, it does not give pastors and Christians in general the freedom to speak out against homosexuality without it potentially being considered a hate crime. Look, a brother in Christ last week was arrested in England for preaching a passage that called homosexuality sin. Who would have ever thought? And so there are huge changes that are taking place, but this is the atmosphere at the end of time, the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And so when you see the Christmas decorations go up in October, you know that Thanksgiving is near. Why? Because Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. And when you see actual signs for the second coming unfolding, then you know that the rapture that has to take place is that much closer. So the next great event is the rapture. While the tribulation period is unfolding on the earth, the judgment of the just, the Bema seat is unfolding in heaven. Christ comes back 
rewarding his saints with various responsibilities, the millennial reign at the end of the thousand years, when Satan has been bound for a thousand years, and I go through six reasons why God would even unfold and have a millennial thousand-year reign on the earth in this series on the Revelation. Listen to Revelation 20. The end of the thousand years, Satan is loosed. Those who were born during the time of the tribulation who did not enter in resurrection bodies. Look, when you die today, your question is, do you receive your resurrection body? No. People say all the time, oh, he's, he's in his resurrection body dancing in heaven. No, he's not. Now, it appears we have some kind of intermediate. Maybe it's a spirit body. Moses and Elijah have not physically been raised from the dead because Old Testament saints are not raised. And again, we walk through this in the prophetic schedule that we give to new Christians until the end of the tribulation. The church is going up next. At the end of the seven years, Old Testament saints will be raised. Moses and Elijah and Abraham and Jacob and those guys don't have their resurrection bodies, yet you see them on the Mount of Transfiguration where they are visibly recognizable because you will recognize people that have gone on before, but they don't receive their resurrection body yet. And so if you've lost a loved one in the church, the body of Christ, they will be resurrected when Christ comes to catch up the church. And those of us who are alive and remain at that time will meet them in the air in a twinkling of an eye will be transformed. So there's a whole prophetic event that will end with the thousand years. Satan is loosed. He's then thrown into the lake of fire where the false prophet and uh, has been for over a thousand years because hell does not annihilate a person. Uh, it is a place that continues forever and ever. And then God creates a brand new universe, a new heaven and a new earth. And the new Jerusalem where your loved ones are, that just becomes the capital city of a brand new place that will come and sit down on a brand new earth. And so it's going to be magnificent. You say, do you think literally this is going to happen? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Why? Because God created within the scripture how to interpret the scripture. And when it comes to prophecy, God gave us a principle, a hermeneutic on how to interpret scripture. And all of the prophecies for the first coming were literally actually fulfilled. And that's how you can expect for the second coming. Now, that doesn't mean that God never uses a metaphor or a symbol or a figure of speech. But, you know, when the Bible calls the devil a great red dragon, he's not a literal great red dragon because the scripture itself goes on to describe that the great red dragon is Satan. So you learn what the symbol means and then you literally believe it. But many times, God doesn't even use symbolic languages. He just speaks straight out. So anyway, that's where I would direct you and anyone else listening. You can call Community Bible Church, and you can ask for the handout from the discovery class entitled God's Prophetic Schedule, and we'll be happy to email it to you. All right, all right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Alberto from Savannah, Georgia is on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, Carl and Rick Korshner. My question is, when the believers or the unbelievers, because the believers stand before the, the uh, judgment seat of Christ, and the unbelievers stand before the great one judgment of Christ. Now, my point is, when the Bible says he's going to judge the unbelievers, so, so all those from the past, Old Testament, since the beginning of mankind to the end of mankind, will he indiv- uh, individually judge each person? 
or or just, or just gather them all up in one shot, you know, and just judge them based on the the Ten Commandments. Because it would take a long time if you're going to judge every single person by you know every single deed they did, you know, or you're going to judge them because they didn't find it in their name in the Book of Life. So how would the process of Christ would judge the uh, unbelievers before they be cast into the lake? Of fire? It's a good question, Alberto. So you know. God is an eternal, all-powerful God. He can just think the judgment and it's finished. Uh, but do we have an individual accountability to God, or is this just this mass, oh, yeah, these are the unbelievers, just cast them all into hell? No, clearly there is individual accountability. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So each individual is going to have their deeds evaluated. The deeds will, one, show that they were lost. One, the book of life is there to show their name is not in it. But their deeds will condemn them because their deeds will prove that they were not true believers in the Lord. But in addition, the scripture is clear. He says it again, every one of them. It's, uh, it, it carries in the Greek, each of them, according to their deeds. So hell is an awful place for everyone who goes there. But it's not the same for everyone who goes there. Somehow, in the perfect justice of God, hell may be different for Hitler than it might be for some little old lady who was too prideful to yield her knee to Jesus. But it will be awful for both of them. It's a place where the worm never dies, where the fire is never quenched. But somehow, in the perfect justice of God, it won't be the same. And Jesus brought that out in the parable of the servant where, you know, one received many lashes, some less, but again, it's an eternal, unending place of torment. And again, the scripture affirms this in other places too, like in in, uh, Romans, the second chapter. I have a whole message. I've preached through the book of Romans chapter by chapter. And by the way, you might just want to listen to the sermon I do on Revelation 2011 to 15, because I go through all the parallel passages that speak of the individual judgment that God will bring on the lost. And we know the scripture says that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And then he says, do you think lightly of the riches and kindness and tolerance and patience of the Lord, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. You're treasuring up wrath. You could say Jesus told us as Christians to lay up treasure in heaven. Some people are treasuring up wrath in Revelation and the righteous judgment of God. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage who will render to each person. There it is again. Who will render to each person according to his deeds. And so, again, he's very clear as he, as he quotes here from Psalm 62. So, um, you know, God is just, and that justice will be fully expressed. And I might equally say that the judgment 
of the saved is equally individual. You say, well, do we have to wait? You know, okay, now it's Rick Forstner's time, and let's go through. Now now it's Carl Brogy's time, and let's look at his. And, man, Brogy took three hours. You know, no, it's just going to happen in a split second by an all-powerful God who's in eternity, who's not measured or dictated by time and space. But the fact that we as believers give a personal accountability to God is clearly taught in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says that no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then he warns that if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's, each and every man, again, here's the individual nature, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be re- revealed with fire. The fire itself will test the quality of every man's work. We call this the Bema, the judgment seat of the, uh, of the just. It's not a seat of punishment. It's a seat of reward. But God will evaluate our life. He will evaluate the things we did, the things we should have done. Uh, he'll look at motive and he'll reward us for all of eternity according to it. So again, God's perfectly just. So if you have two Christians who are both saved, both have their names in the Lamb's book of life, but one is more faithful to the Lord's work. And, you know, they tie to the local church. They discover what their spiritual gifts are. They, they serve in the local assembly. They attempt to invite people to Christ. They look for opportunities to uh, share their faith. Um, God is going to look at that. Uh, again, another passage, Romans 14 and verse 12. So then each one of us, here it is, will give an account of himself to God. And again, contextually, he's talking about believers. So just like each and every unbeliever gives an account of himself to God and he's rewarded with hell, accordingly, each and every believer who's rewarded with heaven will be rewarded accordingly based on their faithfulness. And so God doesn't put us under some divine standard where he's holding this over our head. All he asks us to do is to yield to the Holy Spirit to walk with him. Because the only uh, work that we do for the Lord that's rewarded is work that's done in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. And God will look at our lives. And for those moments when we've been walking with the Lord and filled with the Spirit and serving Christ might be a mom in her home today, and she's just faithfully doing what a mother's supposed to be, not to drop her children off in some daycare somewhere. My hat is off to any woman who has to do that to help put food on the table. And there's sadly a lot of couples who've made decisions based on a worldly point of view where they then come to Christ and they're so deep in debt and because of bad decisions. But some mom who's listening to me today and All she's doing is taking care of her home and those children and loving them. And God's going to look at that. He's going to look at work that's done as you depend on the Holy Spirit. He's going to look at opportunities that you have. He's going to look at everything that we do. There's some guy on a job site. And whether he's framing that house for the glory of God and trying to do his work with excellence because he's spirit-filled or just trying to get away with what he has to do, God looks at everything we do as believers, and he rewards us accordingly. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Fred from Beaufort writes, the news reports show the horror that is happening at the southern border. 
sex trade, children being molested, a girl of nine years old being gang raped. We know Biden messed up, but I can't help wonder where the church is in all of this. Remember the Holocaust? There, they pointed to another madman. Very few came to the aid of Jews, uh, like Corey Ten Boom. Are we not doing the same? Remember in Luke 10:25, the emphasis is not on the robber, but the victim. How can we help the innocent here? Well, I think a lot of Christians have spoken up, and a lot of Christians uh, were trying to get Donald Trump elected uh, because not necessarily of the moral character that he's displayed over a lifetime. God alone knows his heart and whether or not he's come to faith in Christ. But because of the policies that he represented and sought to enact, and so let's be real careful here. You know, I, I'm registered as a Republican, and I'm registered as a Republican not because I have some affinity for the Republican Party, but simply because the Republican platform most closely represents what God believes. You know, I'm not going to register as a Democrat. What a terrible testimony that would be. Yeah, I'm sanctioning the, the, the murder of little babies. That's what I want to do. I, w- I want to murder little babies. I want it to be legalized and legitimate. That's in the platform of the Democratic Party. How could I as a Christian describe to that? Yes, I want the Equality Act to pass. I want to make it hate speech for a preacher to speak against the sin of homosexuality. Yes, I want to limit, eliminate women's sports as we traditionally know them. And if a guy wants to become a woman and and then participate in women's sports so he can win, then that's what I want to do. How can, you know, these are perversions. These are wicked, evil things that we have Democrats, we have a president and a vice president who are standing for. And one of the things our former president tried to do was to just shore up our borders. And that's a biblical principle. In um, the book of Acts, uh, the passage that comes to my mind is in uh, Acts chapter 17, And in verse um, 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times in the boundaries of their habitation. So God is the one who sets boundaries. And there are clear biblical principles that God raises up leaders. Daniel, we studied this in the book of Daniel. He raises up leaders. He raises up nations. He has a purpose in that. And if you don't have a border as a nation, then there's really no order. There's no law. There's no justice. I mean, without borders, how can God bless a nation or how can God judge a nation? You know, if it's just one big open thing, uh, Borders are established by God, and without it, you can't really protect the people in the nation. And so the Trump administration had a desire to put up a wall so that not just anybody could come through. Why? To protect the people in that nation. Look, we know for a fact that Iranians who have been committed Muslims, who want to slit the throats of Christians and cut off their heads as they're doing in other parts of the world have come in over the border. How do we know that? Because a number of them have been caught, not to mention the thousands of Muslim prayer rugs that have been found along the border. So we've got all kinds of, you know, issues like that that are unfolding, not to mention to have the border up 
And to say it's not easy to walk into our country is a compassionate thing. You know, we just saw this boat that was smashed against the rocks and scores of people were injured, three died. Um, people are perishing in the hot desert when they cross through. Just since January, they found it's just slightly under 5,000. It was 4,900 and some change. I heard it yesterday in the news of people who were abandoned by their leaders and lost out there in the wilderness on this side of the American border. And so this is a dangerous thing. When you think of all these children who are being dumped, some literally physically over the wall, how is that compassionate? But you see, when we have a president who says, come on in, what's he trying to do? He's trying to change the fabric of America. You get enough illegals in here, and then you give them all amnesty and the right to vote. Who do you think they're going to vote for? I can tell you. They're going to vote for godless Democratic Party because man tends to be driven by greed rather than by what's right and wrong. So borders are essential to a nation. It is true that the scripture, like in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 10, tells us that we're to be compassionate to the alien who's in the land. In God, in the Torah, let me just turn there for a second. I think it's Deuteronomy 10. And Moses makes um, this statement. He says, um, he executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. So there is to be a compassionate spirit towards the alien who comes into the country. We don't write them off. If, if you have a problem because if someone is from Guatemala or Mexico or something, you say, I don't like this person, then it's your problem. But when God speaks of the alien in passages like Deuteronomy or Leviticus or Second Chronicles, he's speaking of them in terms of people who are coming into the country and are willing to ascribe to the principles that are in Israel. And so you have to have order. So I think what we see happening today um, is very sad, and we've only seen just, I think, the start of it, unless there's some intervention. Well, our time has elapsed, but we're so glad that you could join us for this hour today. Thank you for being with us. God bless you as you walk with Christ. 